HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Casella's Prosciutto Speciale. Learn more at casellasalumi.com. You know, spices were what we would light in fires to create incense for the gods. Like there's such a big and rich heritage over spices having these magical and mystical properties and so many stories that we had made up over time. That was Ori Zohar, co-founder of Burlap and Barrel Spice Company. You'll hear more from him later in the episode. We're continuing our series on global trade this week with all things spice. If you haven't already, be sure to check out our introduction back in episode 100 and last week's episode number 101 on sugar. Spices come from many plant forms. Whole seeds like cumin, dried berries like sumac, dried roots like turmeric and ginger, dried tree bark like cinnamon, and even dried flower stamens like saffron. Humans have been persistently creative in finding ways to make food taste better. Spices offer a window into the world and the history of globalization and trade. This week, we study how the history of the spice trade has flavored our world for good and bad. We kick it off by answering the question of why saffron is so expensive. Then we test your heat tolerance with a story on chili pepper, exploring its hundreds of varieties, its infamous past, and why spicy food can be so addictive. We dig up truths about the notorious food additive MSG and wrap up with the story of mass protests by farmers in India and the implications that the country's new farm bill will have on domestic farmers and the global spice market. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal. For your ears. Meat and Three. First up, Seth Hartman takes a look at saffron, a spice that is well known for its hefty price tag. In today's world of supermarkets and online grocery shopping, consumers have access to almost every kind of spice imaginable. Exotic and once pricey flavor boosters like Zotair, Szechuan peppercorns, and Ufa Biber are now readily available all over the world at extremely low prices. Despite their modern ubiquity, one spice remains as alluring and mysteriously expensive as ever. So saffron of itself is a spice that gives flavor, aroma, and color. So it, it needs no help from any other spice. This is Juan San Mames, CEO of Vanilla Saffron Imports in San Francisco, California. 
He believes that saffron should be priced at a point that accurately reflects the market and has been keeping his customers informed for 40 years. Uh, saffron is not really expensive when you consider that from an ounce, 28.35 grams, you get 907 portions. So when you buy 59.95 for an ounce of saffron, quality saffron, all red, no yellow, into 907 portions, it comes to about 7 cents per serving. For many home chefs, this cost is quite manageable. So why can saffron cost up to $9 per gram at stores like Whole Foods? In saffron, people have this misconception that it is expensive because it comes from far away. One of the things is that it goes through a lot of hands. Vendors continue this misinformation to make it exotic, but it has no, uh, there is no bite, there is no meat in the information they give the consumer. One of the most commonly held beliefs about saffron is that the good stuff is grown exclusively in Iran, which drives the price up considerably due to the country's tense trade relations with the West. Juan was quick to debunk this myth. The saffron comes from the flower, what is called crocus sativus, and the crocus is basically grows wild. It grows uh, even in Switzerland. It grows in, in Austria. It grows also. It grows all over the Mediterranean. It really doesn't matter where the saffron comes from, when it comes from Greece, from Spain, from Morocco, from Iran, from Afghanistan, from Tibet. It doesn't matter. While Iran is by far the biggest global producer of saffron due to an ideal climate and established crocus plantations, there is enough international competition to keep prices reasonable. So if saffron is produced in so many places, how can high-quality products be determined? It's all red. There is no yellow because yellow uh, has no culinary value. It's just added weight. And most important is the moisture. The saffron has the least amount of possible of uh, moisture. In order to produce a quality batch, workers must sort the flower byproduct by color, discarding the useless yellow stamen and keeping the red stigma. After this, the stigma are dried until they are at most 12% water by weight. This is a very labor-intensive process, and is often cited as an excuse to drive up consumer prices. While spectrometer reports and water weight are used to determine quality, some vendors use shady tactics like dyeing yellow strands to trick customers. According to Juan, this is why trusted vendors must include a quality report. So we want to pack it right at the source. So when it comes to us, it's already ready to go. We just visually inspect it. Of course, we look at the lab report. Okay, this is excellent. Because now we know that the parameters of aroma, color, and flavor are going to be superior. Despite some vendors like Juan selling his product at fair rates, there is a clear trend of price gouging when it comes to saffron. In order to combat this, Look for vendors who can certify the color grade and moisture content of their product. After all, why break the bank when you can get the same quality for cheap? Next up in our episode about spice, we look at one plant variety that has become synonymous with that flavor, chili peppers. Hannah Forden explores the chili's origins right here in the Americas and how colonialism and global trade made its many varieties staples across the globe. Full disclosure, I love hot peppers, or as I'm going to call them from here on out, chilies. 
These flavorful fruits are of the genus Capsicum and members of the Solanaceae, or nightshade family. The word chili comes from Nahuatl, an Aztec language. In the Caribbean, the Boracan or Taino word is aji. These are some of the first cultivated plants in the Americas. They've been grown by humans since approximately 5000 BCE, beginning in modern-day Mexico and spreading across Central and South America, as well as the Caribbean. In Cantonese and Mandarin, they're called la jiao. In Hindi, they're mirch, freak in Thai, iber in Turkish, falifuli in Arabic, I could travel much of the globe finding many names and many spicy recipes, but I'm left wondering why chilies have become essential, beloved, and unignorable so far and so wide. So much of the history of cuisine has been the history of kind of traveling around the world. And initially, it was about going to other countries, hiding your source, usually a lot of violence and and even political takeovers, all in pursuit of these flavors that were to be brought back home to be enjoyed as these kind of like exotic, you know, delicacies. Ori Zohar is the co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a spice company that is proudly committed to fairly compensating farmers and bringing the most flavorful spices in the world to consumers. Burlap and Barrel sources single origin spices. Now, what does that mean? So most commercially available spices are sort of an amalgamation of different types of, say, cayenne from multiple farms, multiple locations, multiple levels of quality. It's important to Ori that we know the source and the story behind our spices. With food, and let's face it, most things, it's good to begin at the source. The original home of chilies is Mexico. Chefs and mother-son duo Aron Sanchez and Zarela Martinez host Cooking in Mexican from A to Z. One particular variety of chili encapsulates the flavors of northern Mexico, where Zarela grew up. So the chili corrado is a pepper that's utilized in the American Southwest, also in northern Mexican cuisine. When it's fresh, it is sometimes under the name of an Anaheim chile, a hatch, And then when it's dried, it's that very quintessential red chili that you see with a very smooth exterior. uh, And it's it's really a definitive pepper that's used in the northern part of Mexico and the southwest. And mom, I know it's something that's extremely personal to you. Yeah. And uh, what are your thoughts about this very iconic, very northern Mexican? Well, you know, when when I was growing up, the only chili that there was was chile colorado. It's kind of floral. Yeah. Without being sweet, and, yeah. it's, uh, and it's earthy. Yep. Colorado chilies are essential ingredients for enchiladas, mole, and other beloved Mexican staples, imparting flavors that are indispensable in the region's culinary world. While chilies have been cultivated in Mexico for 7,000 years, it was only after Columbus brought violence, illness, and enslavement to the Americas that chilies made their way across the globe. In fact, just like he mistook the Americas for India, Columbus gathered chilies as a substitute for another spice he was seeking, peppercorns. 
Hence the very confusing and essentially inaccurate name, because peppercorns and chilies come from entirely different continents and biological families. That's why in this story, I'm sticking with chilies. The leaders of Spain were like, hey, you know what? This is great. They hand them out to a bunch of the monasteries around and said, here, figure out, figure this out, start planting it, teach the local people to plant and cultivate these peppers. And then Spain became famous for kind of the smoked pimenton paprika. It eventually made its way over to Turkey through obviously being a center of global trade. Hungary, now that we also know for the like, you know, Hungarian paprika also, like it's just very funny that like that, that's actually only happened in the past few hundreds of years. But now when we look into our pantries, some of the European sources for peppers and paprika and pepper products, you know, have, haven't been there for that long. And yet that's, that's what we often think of when we think about chilies and peppers. But really the origin of it is from this kind of Central America area and it kind of traveled the world from there. But Spain is not the only new adopter of chilies whose national palates have since been shaped by their arrival. Now, can you imagine Thai food without chilies? How about Indian or Chinese? Mao actually liked to sprinkle dried chili pepper flakes on his watermelon. Historian Brian Dot wrote a book called The Chili Pepper in China. He was on the podcast A Taste of the Past in the summer of 2020. Brian studied as many historical records as he could find in order to trace the chili's advancement into Chinese cuisine. The earliest mention he found, however, was not exactly culinary in nature. Long before Chairman Mao and his spicy watermelon, Dot found one very early mention to chilies in China from an avid home gardener. He put the chili pepper in a section on decorative plants, so it seems <laughs> likely he was not eating them but was enjoying them in pots in his garden. Initially, chilies were viewed as too hot to eat. But thanks to easy propagation, home cooks in China came around to the taste. And so the chili pepper will grow in temperate climates. And so you don't need to import it. You just need a few seeds and you're ready to go. Chilies were adopted for more than just decorative and culinary uses. And eating chilies actually makes you feel good. The burning sensation that chilies cause trigger an endorphin release in the brain, making eaters feel happier. So while colonialism and genocide will forever be a dark cloud over Chile's global popularity, cuisines across the world have undeniably benefited from having these strong and beautiful flavors shared widely. Here's Ori from Burlap and Barrel again. There is this really crazy history of, of traveling the world and kind of erasing the culture and erasing the history of it. And now the opposite is happening. So let's eat some chilies, get those endorphins flowing, and celebrate the ingredients we share and the cultures they come from. You can find links to Cooking in Mexican from A to Z and A Taste of the Past in our show notes. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Casella's Prosciutto Speciale. Casella's Prosciutto Speciale is made in America following the time-tested traditions of Italy's Norcini, the itinerant butchers who traveled the countryside preparing, seasoning, and aging meat. 
Just like those dedicated artisans of old, Casella's prosciutto starts with the highest quality ingredients. They exclusively use rare breed heritage pigs, including Duroc, Tamworth, Berkshire, and Large Black, which are pasture raised by small family farmers across the U.S. Their slow on the bone curing process follows the standards of the Italian prosciutto consortia and produces consistently gorgeous results. Casella's prosciutto is elegant. It is marbled, delicate, and nutty. They value that each ham is unique from the next, showcasing the subtle difference between breeds, farms, sizes, and pigs. Casella's believes in the quality of ingredients, good pork, salt, and thyme. It's that simple. Learn more at casellasalumi.com. Welcome back to Meat and Three. Salt is a ubiquitous flavor agent, but some people need to watch their salt levels. Despite what you may think, MSG is a great way to increase the salty, savory flavor of your food while decreasing your sodium intake. Armin Spengen takes a closer look at this misunderstood food additive in our next segment. Monosodium glutamate, better known as MSG, is a food additive that elicits the fifth basic taste. No, it's not sweet, it's not salty, and it's not sour or bitter. It's the savory sensation of umami. But where does MSG come from? How did it get into our foodways and our culture? And why do many Americans have negative associations with this safe salt alternative? I spoke with Sarah Lohman, culinary historian and author, to dish out the truth on MSG. So it can be found in a lot of different places naturally. Uh, it can actually be found in our bodies. It's in our muscles. It's a really common neurotransmitter. Um, you find it in a lot of cured foods like um, cured meat and Parmesan cheese. You find it in a lot of fermented foods as well. Um, you also find it in ripening foods, like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. A white crystalline powder with an appearance not unlike table salt. MSG is a combination of sodium and the amino acid known as glutamate. This combination is what gives MSG the savory, flavor-enhancing umami taste it's known for. Monosodium glutamate is often the byproduct of when food goes through a change. For example, in South America, it is uh, harvested from fermented sugarcane. And here in America, it's harvested from fermented grains, usually corn or soy. It is also a natural part of soy sauce. So fermenting soybeans to create the savory flavor is a really, really ancient process. Many Americans don't realize that MSG is common in both natural and processed foods we consume daily. There's a prevailing view that it's rare and should be avoided. This notion should be taken with a grain of salt. Though trade and migration have increased accessibility to different cultural cuisines, food is usually ground zero for xenophobia and racism. Monosodium glutamate, despite being used in the vast majority by American processed food companies, has had a cultural association with Chinese takeout foods since the 1970s. The first anecdotal reports of someone feeling ill after consuming MSG were directly tied to those people eating at Chinese restaurants. And then the term given to this illness they were getting after they were eating Chinese food that had MSG in it was unfortunately called Chinese restaurant syndrome. That's like calling COVID the China virus. Like, that's just racist. 
Um, so the earliest studies focused on Chinese food and then included that name. This is just a 20th century extension of the same sort of racist attitudes that Americans had about Chinese people um, and their food in the 19th century. You know, if you're still thinking, no, 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 that's not that's not it, you know, listeners out there. Um, I mean, you've heard of Chinese restaurant syndrome, maybe, or someone feeling ill after eating Chinese food, but you never hear of Italian restaurant syndrome. And nobody ever gets Doritos syndrome. Like Doritos has tons of MSG in it. These xenophobic views can even be traced to a gag letter sent into the New England Journal of Medicine in the 1960s. But according to the FDA, adding MSG to food is generally recognized as safe. As the myths that gave MSG a bad rap are debunked, Sarah believes the public opinion surrounding the additive is beginning to shift. I think that there's something very positive that's been happening with the perception of MSG within the last decade. It's become more of like a foodie thing. I think it was the foodies in the first place that were pushing back and saying, oh, no, it's bad for me. Um, But now that we have a generation of chefs whose parents might have come from China or Korea or Japan or Thailand, um, and they themselves were born in America and grew up here, that is the generation that really bridges the gap between their family's home country and America at large. And it's these Asian American chefs that are really taking this point in advocacy and not mincing any words about MSG's association with xenophobia. So it's not very many chefs that are brave enough to put an MSG shaker out on the table like you'll see in restaurants in Asia um, and even in uh, Asian neighborhoods throughout the country or even adding it as an ingredient in their dishes. MSG has landed at the crossroads of globalization. A new generation of chefs are working to make it clear that MSG isn't scary. But at the same time, larger corporations continue to hide their use of MSG from consumers. An increasingly globalized world also means that access to information is ubiquitous. It's important to question where your ideas about food come from, not just where your food comes from. Who is feeding you those ideas? So the next time you go to grab the table salt, consider shaking things up and reaching for MSG instead. In our final story, Tosh Kimmel investigates the farmer strike in India and what it might mean for the future of the spice trade. Over the past five months, millions of Indian farmers have taken to the streets to protest their government. The protests, which come in the wake of three newly passed farm bills, have seen throngs of outraged farmers march to the capital of Delhi, setting up camp on its outskirts in hopes of a full repeal. With more than half of the country's 1.3 billion population working as farmers, agriculture is India's largest industry. And as the number one exporter of spice, producing about 68% of the world's supply, these laws threaten not only to further disenfranchise India's greatest labor force, but to make waves in the global spice trade. To better understand the implications of these policies, I spoke with Shraddha Agarwal, a journalist for the People's Archive of Rural India, who recently traveled to Delhi with a caravan of farmers. So uh, the whole journey was, well, uh, we no doubt it was exhausting because five days being on the road. Uh, but when we reached there, there was, uh, you know, a sense of solidarity to just to see it, uh, farmers from different states coming together to fight for their rights. And they have somehow uh, managed to make the protesters their home. And they have said it before and they're saying it again. They are not going to leave these protesters unless and until there is a complete repeal of these three farm laws. 
For decades, farmers sold their goods at government-controlled auction houses at a fixed price known as MSP, or minimum support price. In theory, these pieces of legislation, which Prime Minister Modi rushed through Parliament in September, would allow farmers direct access to a larger market, encouraging corporate investment, removing government-imposed taxes, and allowing farmers to name their own price. However, by removing government oversight, farmers will be subject to the whim of greedy corporations, forcing them into the free market and doing away with the minimum support price they rely on. Given the new farm laws, the assurance of MSP has been removed. These laws are essentially going to impact every single farmer. Farmers in India are already an incredibly disenfranchised class. While a majority of Indians work on farms, few of them are landowning. If these laws persist, this will be the first time in almost 100 years farmers will be subjected to the erratic fluctuation of global market prices. As such, these new legislations will not only affect the livelihoods of farmers, but also the quality of their product on the world market. India is, I I believe, they're the largest per capita consumer of spices, uh, the largest exporter of spices, as well as one of the largest importers of spices. That's Ethan Frisch, the co-founder of single-origin spice company Burlap & Barrel. As a major player in the global spice trade, India and its domestic affairs hold weight in the international spice world. If a farmer has a good harvest, they'll sell what they need to sell at the going rate. But if that going rate is too low, they will almost always save some of their harvest to try to sell it in the off-season or wait for the following year and hope that the prices get better. And what that does is it's really just incentivizing farmers to reduce the quality of what they grow. It's sitting around and often on the farm and not under ideal circumstances. And so the only tool that a farmer has to protect themselves is essentially to lower the quality of their crop, which doesn't work for them. It doesn't really work for the company in the middle. It doesn't really work for, for the consumer who's, who's ultimately getting a product that's older and staler and doesn't taste as good. With the price of Indian spices becoming subject to global market fluctuation, many farmers' only recourse will be to stockpile goods in the hopes of selling in the off-season or when the global price comes up. And as a country who relies on India for pantry staples like ginger, pepper, turmeric, and chili, we stand to feel the residual effects of these policies. I hope that there are ways for people in the U.S. beyond just reading about these protests in the newspaper or hearing about them on, on the radio, that there will be tangible impacts so that people understand that these are people's lives and livelihoods. Um, you know, the protests, people are not going to the protests for fun. They're going to the protests because they feel like farmers, you know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. Though we may seem far removed from the nuances of Indian farm policy, our position as the largest importer of Indian spices in the world connects us to the issue. While few of us may interact with spice farmers themselves, many of us have a deep familiarity with their products. So next time you find yourself in the spice aisle, consider the people who made it possible for you to enjoy them, as they fight for their rights, both as farmers and as citizens. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Seth Hartman, Hannah Forden, Armin Spengen, and Tosh Kimmel. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, 
Write us at ideas at meetn3.nyc. That's all spelled out.